Hello, 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 and welcome back to yet another episode of Absolutely Nobody's Favorite Podcast, Annoying Question Boy. Uh, I am your host, Josh, a.k.a. Annoying Question Boy, I guess. Uh, And today, boy, do we have a doozy for you. First and foremost, to those of you who have been uh, listening to the podcast for like the past two months, you might notice that uh, you cannot hear my car in the background, and that is because today I am coming to you on a uh, almost unheard of uh, celebration, which is I have a day off. So let's get a round of applause in the in the chat for that one. Uh, even though I'm not recording and there is no chat, and nobody really listens to this podcast. Um, <laughs> but, uh, today I wanted to come to you guys and talk to you about, um, kind of, well, actually, before I get into that, I would like to say, uh, happy holidays to everybody who celebrates, um, because I think it's important that we talk about, uh, the happiness that some of us can experience during these times, because a lot of us are not experiencing any happiness. So I would like to say that I am thankful for the holidays that I was able to enjoy. Uh, it was a, uh, it was an unheard of, uh, you know, enjoyable get together with my family. That doesn't normally happen. And so I'm very thankful to that. Uh, or for that, and I'm very thankful uh, that I was able to spend time with friends and with um, you know loved ones because I am well aware of the privilege that I carry with just you know that simple act. <clears throat> and so, you know, I want to say that I'm very grateful for the things which I have been able to enjoy this holiday season. I hope there are many of you out there who uh, feel the same, um, and I I really you know. I really hurt for those of you who are, are not able to say the same, who might have, you know, lost a loved one during this time, lost a job, lost your home, lost your ability to provide for yourself. Um, a lot of people are hurting during these times, and it's so awful. And so I just, you know, I want to say how grateful I am for my own um, privilege and, you know, happiness during these times, but also acknowledge the that that is not the case for the majority of people in this world today. And I think that, you know, something that we don't really take into account very often because a lot of us are so used to it is that this, you know, this, you know, really this sad society that we live in is not the necessary society that has to exist. Uh, contrary to popular belief and against all other information which our country and other countries like it <clears throat> would have you believe, um, this system is not natural, this system being capitalism, um, is not natural, nor is the way that liberalism has uh, been used to govern govern it, nor is anything that has uh, you know, hit the world stage since its inception. Um, and something that I, I really think is incredibly important to understand is this idea of, you know, being anti-capitalist. Um, and I think that it's a growing phenomenon today, which is lovely. Um, it's not growing fast enough, I can tell you that. But we'll, you know, in the spirit of the earlier words of the episode, we'll stay positive. Um, it is growing, I can tell that much. Um you know, this discontent for the way things are, this um, inability for most people to provide for themselves, this is not 
natural. How could it be? How could the very people who are subject to the system which they live in, how could they build a system which would not provide for themselves? How does that make sense? You know, and the answer is because they didn't, you know, a lot of our history and a lot of our understanding of our history, especially in places like the uh, America and other imperialist nations, is this this idea that the people were really the pushing force behind the revolution. And although in a lot of cases this might be true, it wasn't necessarily the majority of people. Um, <clears throat> and in the cases where it was, it was not a true proletariat as we might understand it. It was not the working class individuals who were, you know, revolting during the 17 and 1800s for change. And quite frankly, the only change that these revolutions sought after was the uh, the ability to be the exploiter, to be the oppressor themselves. Um, capitalism is a system which grew in and then out of feudalism. And feudalism was a system wherein there were kings and queens and governesses and lords and all these things. Um, but the majority of people did not have any ownership of land, did not have any ownership of the means of production, did not have any ownership of their lives, really. And I know a lot of people today might feel the same, and that's kind of the whole point. <clears throat> uh, but so eventually enough people in enough positions of opportunity were able to successfully revolt against the system which existed, and in many different ways, including uh, colonialism and through that settlerism uh, in places like Central, South, and Latin America and all other continents across the world, um, and affirm their new society in this way. But therein, um, the very creation of the society which we live in today uh, had built within itself something which we're going to get into a little bit later, which was uh, a new contradiction. Uh, through the process of building that new society, it built also within it two opposing classes, what we now know as um, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, right? So in the spirit of this conversation, first and foremost, I would like to talk to you about the fact that this is exactly what my new book is about. And so if you have any interest in this conversation uh, before or even after this podcast, um, hopefully that'll be out in the new year. Uh, I'm very excited about that. And so, you know, be on the lookout for that. And the other thing that I wanted to talk about is um, so I've been considering for a while now uh, changing my podcast's whole, like, deal. Um, so since its start, it was Annoying Question Boy, uh, which originally when I started this, it was a blog, um, and it was a blog which was really about me, like, pointing out stuff that was wrong in society as I was, you know, growing, uh, and becoming more, like, aware and conscious of things, you know. I really started building a lot of my analysis through the use of that blog. I really started forming a lot of my political ideals through that blog and the things that it led me to. And then eventually it became a podcast because I enjoyed talking about these things far more than I enjoyed typing about these things. Um, and I'm also a much better speaker than a writer, I think. 
um, or I feel I can at least convey ideas a little bit better if I'm able to speak through them instead of trying to write them eloquently. Um, and so, you know, I, I grew the podcast and through the use of the podcast over the last year, which it's been, I think, a year and a month now, um, since I started, but, you know, through that time, it really has been a, a tool and an avenue, which has allowed me to, uh, get to the place where I am today to evolve and become, I would argue, a wholly new person. Holy spelled W-H-O-L-L-Y, not H-O-L-Y. Um, as much as my family might think otherwise, I do not claim to be the son of God. Um, and so uh, I would like to uh, propose a name change um, that will lead me into forcing myself having to rebrand and recreate uh, my pod and my blog and everything, I'm hoping to be able to create a website where like I do all of that in one place. And so hopefully that'll be coming in the new year or at least at some point in 2021. Uh, we'll start with the new name because I think that's something that I can definitely manage. Um, so I am going with or I have decided to go with the name of... Um, in defense of liberation. So originally I was thinking in defense of revolution, but I think the more important focus of, you know, what I aim to educate people about, what I aim to educate myself about, what I aim to uh, progress forward is this idea of liberation. Um, so before we, we get right into that, I'm going to go ahead and give myself a little bit of a plug. Um, really, the main reason um, I want to do this is because like, I feel like my politics have really evolved. Um, the blog really started as a place where I could rant. Um, I, I really do want to rebrand and kind of figure out how to get all my stuff in one central location, like I said. And also, I kind of want to be a little bit more respectable. Um, not to be like professional, but because I want to do stuff like this for like my life's work um, and possibly for a living, I think that it's, you know, time that I take it a little bit more seriously. So with that in mind, uh, I'm trying to build this up. You know, I'm really trying to work on, you know, making this more accessible, making this more enjoyable and making this more... Um, uh, interesting to people in order to get them to watch it. Uh, so, you know, if you are, you know, on the lookout for a new podcast to listen to, it's your first time listening to this and you want to, you know, be aware of updates, or if you just don't know about my social medias, um, first and foremost, we can talk about my blog, which, you know, also does still exist and my latest, uh, uh, post on there. So my blog is at annoying question boy spelt just like that. Uh, no caps, no spaces, dot blog, B-L-O-G, spot, S-P-O-T, no caps, no spaces, dot com. Um, the latest one that I put on this morning was uh, titled, We Can't Fix a Broken System, which is about the fact that, you know, trying to work within the system to improve it is an absolutely impossible task. Um but it also discusses that, like, you know, the need for reforms and such during these awful times, you know, especially during COVID, 
for the sake of saving people's lives is incredibly important as well. Uh, it discusses, you know, things such as uh, mutual aid and uh, also trying to build some kind of things like, you know, for example, Medicare for all, um, how these things can save lives, um, but how they are not the, they're not the move which is going to save us all or even really fix the problem which is causing uh, a lot of these things which we're, we're facing today. Um, so for example, something that we could use to contextualize this idea is the idea of sanctions, right? What are sanctions? Well, to a lot of people, sanctions are an act of a country uh, for use of political leverage in order to get other countries to kind of, you know, follow suit. But if you really look on the, the micro level, level rather than the macro level, meaning if you look really in, inward of what happens when sanctions are placed on certain countries uh, let's look for example at a country such as Venezuela <clears throat> during the pandemic Venezuela has suffered uh, many many rounds of sanctions uh, by the US um, which has led to uh, a lot of devastation you know uh, countries which trade with Venezuela also suffer what are called second-hand sanctions um, and so you know, these things are making it almost impossible for Venezuela to import uh, medical supplies, food, uh, and a lot of other things which are incredibly necessary for um, keeping people alive right now. Another thing which uh, has happened is uh, the United States, along with other imperialist powers, have used their influence or their sway in order to block uh, all loans uh, which were to be given out to Venezuela, including also, um, uh, I, I don't believe it was a bank that was returning this, but the Museum of Great Britain, uh, which uh, owns some kind of historical artifact. or uh, It's either a historical artifact and it is the great, the Museum of Great Britain, or it's some bank, and they have some lump sum of money which is owed to Venezuela, which is being blocked from being given to them. And I think that's something like $330 billion worth of uh, whatever it is that is being blocked from given to Ve being given to Venezuela. And, you know, <clears throat> again... As I say about a lot of things, we can sit here and have a discussion about whether or not we think Venezuela is a true socialist country, whether or not we think Venezuela is authoritarian or whatever, which we're going to get into that later as well. Um, this is These are things which are actively creating death, right? Or at least making it a lot harder for these people to stay alive. And so because this is a, a system or a country which exists... Uh, to give things publicly to the people if that country doesn't have funding it can't give the people the things that it needs and because the society is organized in such a way that people are dependent on the, those things if they are not given those things they don't have the means to provide themselves with them in other ways because their system is you know built on receiving those things through the assistance of the government things such as um you know, food, government assistance programs, housing, education, things like that, jobs as well, um, medical supplies, medical attention, uh, 
an example to understand it for a lot of us Americans. Remember earlier in the pandemic when we had like restaurants and everything shut down? Um, and what happened was almost two to three months in, we just decided to open them all back up. And that's because the way society is structured in this country, or, you know, more specifically our economy, um, it is dependent on those service industries, which were closed at that time, such as restaurants and other, you know, um, retail businesses and things of that nature, which were closed. And 57% of our economy is based on what is called the service industry. And so when we closed all those things during the beginning of the pandemic for, you know, the safety of human beings in this country, we saw a huge decline in our economy, in our GDP. Um, I don't have a huge understanding of that, and I'm not going to pretend like I do. So let's, you know, move past it. But so we had to open everything back up because of the way society is structured. It did not um, make sense or it was not uh, going to uh, be able to sustain itself if we kept those restaurants closed. And so we, so we had to open everything back up, right? And so in socialist societies where the people are dependent on things like housing, medical supplies, education, food, and other government assistance programs, and society is structured in that way, when the government in one way or another is incapable of providing those things for the people, they're isn't really a way where those people can therein uh, find those things elsewhere. Um, thankfully for a lot of these countries, including Venezuela, they have structured their society in a way which has always been in competition with these powers of capitalism, which, you know, time and time again, try to crush um, socialist movements, uh, people's movements like uh, that in Venezuela and elsewhere. Um, and so they have really uh, structured their society in a way which is able to still, uh, even in, you know, lesser amounts and lesser quality, maybe provide for the people. You know, a lot of agricultural uh, things are done in these countries, which make it so that these countries don't need to import food like the United States does. They grow their own food and therefore they don't need to pay for it. Um, or I guess, I guess the way it works is really complicated. But basically, they don't have to pay as much for it. There, it's it's easily it's more easily um, accessible, right? So there's that, um, and you know, to really understand what sanctions are, just you know, uh, as a one-off here. Um, so we're gonna talk about this a little later, but. Like everything else, capitalism is a progressive state, right? It's it's a thing which continues and evolves and changes and, you know, morphs itself to fit into the current state of being of the rest of society. Um, so if you're to understand something like sanctions, you really have to understand what that means. So capitalism is a system which, as you know, someone like uh, Lenin pointed out and many others uh, progresses towards things such as imperialism. And one way that imperialism is acted out is through the act of sanctions. 
Um, and these sanctions are to make economic and material conditions in socialist countries uh, look really bad as to perpetuate the idea that capitalism is supposedly the natural way of existence because look at these socialist countries which are failing and that's why whenever you have this conversation or you hear the conversation or you see the conversation involving Venezuela the easiest way to understand that conversation of you know Oh, is Venezuela really socialist? Is Venezuela's socialism killing its people? No. The fact that Venezuela is not socialist is not necessarily the cause of the, you know, conditions which exist, which lead to the death of a lot of people unnecessarily. Um, the reaction by powers such as the United States and other imperialist uh, bloc powers and then the actions which they take to suffocate and starve out countries like Venezuela uh, is what leads to the death of these people. Not the simple fact that they are socialist, but what being socialist in the world today means and then how other powers act upon that, right? Um, so... <clears throat> We can't really in America, you know, at least the majority of us can't. We can't really understand the the reality which exists for a lot of people in the world because even though a lot of us are very poor, you know, m most of us can't provide the very means of survival for ourselves today. And so that's you know, side note. That's why the six hundred dollars or even the two thousand uh, dollar direct uh, stimulant. Uh, to the people of America is a direct slap in the face because that money is not going to help anybody. And they know it. They know that it's only going to be enough to pay off a few bills and then boom, you're still in poverty. And then what? We wait another nine months for another stimulus bill to come out? No. We're all, we, we all need, you know, at the very least, I would argue that everybody needs like $10,000 right now in their bank account in order to survive the next few months. Because what we have to understand is that you know, look at the crash of 2007, and I'm going off on a tangent here, so I'll bring myself back after this point, but look at the crash of 2007, right? A lot of us think of it. No, it's the crash of 2008. Well, in actuality, what what caused the crash, you know, the crash itself actually um, was caused in 2007, but the reaction, what most people were uh, impacted by, was the economic collapse which came in 2008, okay? In 2020, we have seen a lot of awful things that have happened, which you know, cannot go unresolved. These things are not going to just go away. And so in 2021, we can expect and we should be expecting massive economic collapse. That's just understandable. If you look at any uh, huge capitalist collapse like this, which people such as Frederick Engels argued and with, you know, much truth to their point that happens every single 10 years, um, these, these collapses the cause happens and then you know later on you see the collapse you see the material conditions of the majority of people decrease or worsen um, and so we have to be on the watch out for this to come in the next year so if they give us say two thousand and two thousand dollars right now 
in 2021 when 60% of America is out of a job, it's not going to matter if we got $2,000 in December of 2020 because all of us aren't going to have a home. The banks are all going to be closed. You know, everything's going to be fucked. We have to, you know, it might not necessarily get that bad, but it's certainly going to get very bad. And so I would argue that at the very, 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 very least, like giving someone one French fry out of your um, Baconator meal, your large Baconator meal, that that's essentially what $10,000 would be to the majority of Americans today. Because guess what? Eventually, that $10,000 has to be spent in order to serve to survive and if there's nothing that's replenishing that ten thousand dollars which you can fucking guarantee that the united states government after any money that they give us now will have no intention of giving us any more or helping us in any other way other than what little help they've given us to this point um you have to understand that two thousand dollars even ten thousand dollars will not provide for people in the coming years because this shit is going to have impacts which will lead for years and years and years you know capitalism is truly in a state of decay the best way to be able to you know cross the barrier between the reality which exists for oppressed people in say quote unquote third world nations and oppressed people like myself and uh you know people far worse off than myself in the united states the way to bridge that that even you know huge gap um, is through something called internationalism. So, you know, a real way to understand internationalism is to separate ourselves from the idea of what a nation even is. Because if we're to understand a nation, um, abstractly, a nation such as the United States is just a coming together of people under an organized, you know, coalition and saying, you know, from this border to this border, from that border to that border, under this government, under this uh, political ideology, under this um, state, we exist as a nation. We are the United States of America. Usually this decision is also not made uh, by the majority of people, but on behalf of the majority of people, by the minority of people, supposedly. And so if we're to think of what a nation is abstractly, then we can understand that this is actually quite a weird concept, right? Um, look at the, the groups of people in Washington. Supposedly, we are a nation under their guidance, but none of us, I would argue, really put those people there, nor did any of us say that we wanted to be um, organized under and subject to the rule of these people. I would argue that the majority of people do not want that in any way, shape, or form. And so it's really an, uh, an odd idea to think about what a nation is in that way. And so internationalism can be more precisely understood in this idea of a people's liberation. And through internationalism, we begin to see people rather than as, say, Americans or Canadians, um, I would argue even more than simply workers, as a lot of uh, traditional Marxist thinkers present us, uh, we are people, we are the human race. And not to dive into humanism, but to argue that the human race is a more precise and concise collective than even, say, workers, especially in a time in America where still more than 90 million people are jobless today. 
Um, that is, before and during and most likely after the end, quote-unquote, of this pandemic which we're suffering under today. Um, so to get into this a little bit more, um, I wrote a book, right? I said that, about uh, liberation, which is called Liberation is Irresistible. And so uh, when we come back, we're going to dive right into that. Uh, I'm going to go grab some snickerdoodle cookies that I made because they're on my mind right now and they sound really good. So I'm about to go do that. I will be back. All right. Hey, I'm back. <clears throat> um, those were very good. I want another one. Um but yeah, so my book, Liberation is Irresistible, uh, this is kind of the conversation which is contained within it in a brief summary. Uh, so before we can talk about why liberation is irresistible or really what that means, we have to understand what liberation even is and why I and other people find it so important. So liberation to me is a process wherein the people of a given area are able to fight for their own self-determination and the dignity to control their own lives. Um, basically, this isn't really, you know, how do I want to go about saying this? So, not every time that we see liberation movements pop up throughout history, do we see these liberation movements take steps and take, you know, concrete um analysis forward in order to employ things which will uh, push this liberation into the future. Basically what I mean is they're not doing things which are going to cement this people's liberation into reality and make it so that the governments and the you know society that comes out of that or the society that we're working towards through the process of liberation is going to be one which can uphold itself, right? Um, there's certainly a, a lot of missteps and a lot of, uh, trial and error throughout different liberation movements all throughout history. Um, there's a lot of people who spend more time critiquing liberation movements throughout history than understanding the lessons that we can learn from them and therein employ in our own liberation movements. I think a lot of people find that it's more important to sit here and, uh, bust the balls of people who are actually taking concrete steps uh, towards change um, from what a lot of people would call armchair philosopher perspectives. Uh, I have no respect for people like this, and I think that if this is what you feel is more important to spend your time doing, you might as well just, quite honestly, turn off your phone, get rid of your theory books, and just stop thinking about it, because um, first and foremost, nobody gives a fuck what you think, uh, and second of all, um, there is no uh, time or place for these conversations when we don't even have simply a representative party of the people in any form of government which uh, has any chance at impacting change. So I think we should be focusing on stuff like that rather than critiquing different revolutions throughout history uh, in the governments to come from them, right? <clears throat> We definitely need to spend more time coming together and trying to actually help ourselves and the people of this country than we should uh, spend critiquing each other's um, ideologies. Of course, if your ideology is contradictory to the mission, which is um, helping people, then you can get fucked. Um, but the mission of helping people, if that is hold, held dearly, uh, for the time being, we need to 
uh, put aside issues which need not be antagonistic and work together to help the people of this planet who are literally dying right now as we're having this conversation. So one way that I think um, a lot of these movements uh, miscalculate their moves is they don't really build a connection to the masses, right? Um, one of the first things that was developed in the revolutions of 1917, uh, or rather I should say the October 1917 revolution, is this idea of the uh, vanguard party, which a lot of people take issue with or take offense with. And we can argue whether or not this is a good thing or a universal tactic or even something that helped the revolution at all or the, the, the people and the uh, country and the existence to come after the revolution. That's you know a whole another conversation. But the Vanguard Party is certainly something which you can argue pushed the needle forward in our conception of what revolution can look like. And I would argue because the Russian Revolution was able to uphold itself all the way into, uh, you know, I would argue into the 90s, even though, again, conversation about Russia and whether it's socialist or not, da 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 you know, it, it was able to uphold itself as an anti-capitalist nation until then, supposedly, right? That calls for success, and so that proves the success or the existent successes within the idea of the Vanguard Party, and we should take that idea and put it into the context which we are trying to use it and see if it can work, if it can't work, if it needs to be adapted for our context and stuff like that. Uh, another uh, fault which a lot of these movements uh, fall privy to is a lack of organization and therein uh, a focus on spontaneity. I think that spontaneity is incredibly important, especially in calling for the attention of people, right? Um, but in the state of being which we exist in today, especially in places like America, spontaneity is not going to do anything, right? We have a very militant and a very organized uh, state apparatus, a uh, very organized government, and a very organized ruling class which has no intention of ceding any power to the people or giving any help to the people whatsoever. So we have to meet their organization with our own organization, right? Another <coughs> huge fall um, is a focus on nationalism. Um, national liberation is, as I've talked about before, incredibly important and can help to bring people together. But a focus on nationalism through the act of liberation can lead towards fascism. Um, and so, you know, it, it's important to keep all these things in mind when we're analyzing or thinking about starting our own uh, people's liberation movement, right? So, fascism, authoritarian. Offensive words, right? Um, they're definitely egregious, and we certainly should all stop using them, including myself. Um, I think using the term fascism to describe a state of, uh, you know, a type of government, uh, an organization of the state in a certain existence and a certain reality uh, is important uh, and important to understand what that looks like. But I think calling things fascist or calling things authoritarian um, needs to stop. Um, I do it all the time, and so, you know, I'm really calling myself out here, too. Uh, but we need to focus on not doing that, because I think it takes away from understanding those terms and giving people the education which they really need in order to understand the complexities of the problems we're facing today. Um, 
Yeah, and also, sorry, I'm reading off of notes for the first time in a while, and I'm not doing very good at it. So, especially, these terms are extremely offensive for the purpose of being offensive, right? And oftentimes they come from being very, or they come from very biased places of analysis. And they can actually usually blind us from, you know, a deeper understanding and a deeper analysis of the problems and what's happening. For example, you know, just pointing at something and saying, oh, they're fascist, um, or oh, they're authoritarian, or, and even, and you might not like this, saying, oh, they're state capitalist, is simply a cop-out analysis which ignores any material realities and conditions, and instead chooses to oppose these things from a moral standpoint. Um, this is an exercise in, in idealism, and ultimately is a pitfall which many of us fall into time and time again. Um, of course, this is not a condemnation of anyone. Uh, I myself do this all the time, but we have to make sure that we're not opposing these things due to our own morality, because morality is not um, object or yeah, it's not objective, and it's not something that we all are going to hold the same. So opposing things uh, from a moral standpoint standpoint is a is a failure. Okay, so. In my book, I describe this, but let's talk about it. Liberation is a process, right? So is socialism, and so is everything else. Um, these are really important characteristics of uh, any revolutionary um, theory, usually. Um, one of the first notions being that uh, nothing is a stagnant state of being. Uh, it is all continuously evolving, right? And so one way which we can understand this and one way that this has been proven is by looking at natural selection, uh, the process of evolution within the natural world, right? Another way to understand this uh, and another way which this theory uh, has been proven is through the theory of the ever-expanding universe. Another uh, point to understand is that contained within these non-stagnant states of being are millions of things called contradictions. So in the natural world, a way to understand what a contradiction might be is, you know, nature and its surrounding ecosystem, um, natural selection, uh, survival of the fittest, that's contradictions, right? In physics, the contradiction would be the correlation between action and reaction. Uh, neither can happen without the other, but you also can't understand one without the other. Uh, a principal contradiction, which is essentially, you know, the central or according to Mao, the main contradiction that defines and influences how all other contradictions work in a given complex whole, is to a T, you know, the yin and the yang. You cannot have the good without the bad, but you also cannot understand either without their opposite. And also, contained within each the good and the bad is those little specks of their antithesis right inside of themselves. This is basically the idea of contradictions, right? And it's important because capitalism does not escape this fate, nor does any other part of life. Its principal contradiction is identified by many uh, and is, in fact, the contradiction between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. So this means that existence, especially, you know, existence within a society, uh, with such complicated concepts such as an economy, can't escape this fate either. 
And so in situations such as China, for example, many people might claim that it is not a true socialist state. Or rather, they might even condemn it to the existence of state capitalism. Which, what even is state capitalism, right? Can we truly expect that socialism just one day appears? And the process towards communism will not have contained within itself... What? Oh, we also can't expect that communism itself and the process towards communism will not also have... Uh, these contradictions contained within it, um, which is outside of this conversation, right? Um, but we, we can all agree that these things are contained in everything uh, when we're talking outside of this idea of socialism or the idea that socialism might not look like what we want it to look like. We can agree that these things have contradictions when we're having that conversation, but when we're talking about our idea or our conception of what socialism should look like, we can't understand this point. Um, <clears throat> it would really be intelligent, right, to analyze things in a consistent way rather than just fitting out analysis um, into our own ideal conception of really what socialism or communism must or should look like. So um, one way to understand why liberation is important is really uh, through the understanding of contradictions, that the only way to break a contradiction is by breaking through a contradiction with one thing winning over the other. Um, uh, in a lot of cases, we see revolutions in history being the revolutions of the bourgeoisie, the new class over the old ruling class. But in today's day and age, what we're looking at is the proletariat versus the bourgeoisie. And what we're really trying to work towards, and if you call yourself a socialist or a leftist or whatever, I would hope that what you're really trying to work towards is through the ending of these contradictions through the destruction of the bourgeoisie, through the destruction of the class antagonisms which exist in bourgeois society by the proletariat, by the working class. So one way to understand why this is important is because liberation is in direct op opposition of capitalism. And here, here's some ways to understand this, right? And really why capitalism is harmful to the average person worldwide. So if we can all agree with the notion that imperialism is not in and of itself separate from capitalism, but is rather of a continuation of capitalism through the very same evolutionary process which all of existence is subject to, then we must understand that capitalism itself is the cause of the inequality which is existent on all civilized contents, right? But what is inequality? So inequality is the symptomatic surfacing of the plague that is capitalism. It's the way that we identify uh, the failure of the system which we see today. Uh, it is what we might understand as poverty in a lot of cases, or rather is, is the cause of it. Uh, see how contained within even this very specific idea there is plenty of complexity already? This is how life goes. Um, and we need to begin to understand this in order to be the masters of life. That is to mean that we are con in control of our own destinies. We being the people of the world, the human race. So, to get back to the point... Inequality is what causes what we know as poverty. 
Poverty, of course, is in simple terms. The inability to afford the necessities of life, i.e. food, water, shelter, education, um, medicine, etc. These things, however, are not in scarcity. Uh, here in the United States, we throw away more than uh, $150 billion worth of food every single year. That's more food than, <clears throat> than most of us could even you know, form a mental picture of. Um, yet we see poverty and analyze it in its own individual existence without taking into account that poverty is like everything else in the world caused by something. So since we understand that everything is a process, we know that inequality is a process as well, right? <clears throat> it grows and grows and grows. And now it's to the point where in the U.S. the inequality between the 1% or in other days the aristocracy and the majority of the working people, the, main, the remaining citizenry, uh, excluding people like celebrities, politicians, and other elites, is larger than that of the inequality that existed during both the French revolutions and most revolutions which have ever existed today. That is what leads to revolutions, usually. But now the question becomes, what is causing this inequality, right? Because if we want to solve a problem, we have to know what's causing it. And I think that we all know in our hearts that capitalism is, in fact, the cause of the problems that we're facing today. We can sit here and deny it all day long, but the simple fact of the matter is that the use of history and its concrete evidence that it gives us shows, it that, shows us that this inequality did not always exist. And yet, it has been continuously getting worse in general since the inception of, cap of the capitalist mode of production. That is precisely all that Marx and Engels wrote about, and yet half of this country is convinced that they were sociopaths, but they were simply writing to give people a scientific analysis of the mode of production which they were actively participating in. That's pretty fucking important, especially when your entire livelihood is dependent on that system. It probably would be you know, a keen idea to have an understanding of that system. So, you know... An even bigger question to ask ourselves if we're asking ourselves what causes inequality is really, you know, if we can understand that inequality is caused through the process of capitalism, which, you know, if you really want a, a, a real quick summation of how that happens, um, basically, in the beginning times of capitalism, uh, so, like, back before you had even organized co-ops or manufacturers, as they were called, um, you had primary, or excuse me, you had individual producers. And those individual producers were people who needed things and therefore provided those things for themselves. You know, a great way to understand this concept is, you know, the idea of homesteading. You have animals so that you can provide for yourself to eat, to make clothes, things like that. You have uh, a greenhouse for similar things, for medicines. You have land in order to grow things, in order to make household goods like uh, chairs, tables, cabinets, all kinds of stuff. That is what an individual producer was. Well, eventually through the process and the scientific uh, production of different tools and uh, forms of agriculture which made it easier for the average person to provide for themselves eventually they were producing more than what they needed and so what they would do and you know we know this today as being supposedly the natural way of things but there was a time before this ever happened 
basically what they would do is they would take their excess um, goods and they would trade them. Um, and through this process, you see the inception of capitalism. Well, eventually people realized that the easiest way to make money uh, through this you know, system that was coming to existence was not through just the simple trading of goods, but rather owning what is called the means of production. So what is the means of production? Well, means of production is essentially everything that's needed to produce a commodity. So if you're looking at a chair, you got the wood, so you gotta cut down the wood, you gotta mill it into usable pieces, then you have to have all the hardware to go along with it. You have to have the education to know how to build it. You have to have someone with the education to know how to build it, building it. You have to have the tools in order to commit that. You have to have the facility in order to do that. And again, you have to have the capital in order to give that person in order to provide that you know service for you in exchange for what we know as wages. All of that is the means of production. So eventually, people started realizing that if in some way or another they could own these things, own these means of production, they could make more money and become richer. Through this process, eventually, as we've seen in every collapse, um, in every revolution, in <clears throat> every failure of capitalism, that process leads to fewer and fewer and fewer and fewer people owning a uh, portion of those means of production and subsequently through that um, that creates inequality and therein that inequality creates uh, the inability for the majority of people to afford the necessities of survival you know um, 28 million people in america don't have health insurance Medi medical care is 100 uh, percent a human necessity um, 90 million people don't have a job. Well, in a country where you have to have make an income in order to survive, having a job is definitely a human necessity. So now you have a system that cannot provide for the very people which participate in the system. And moreover, you have a system which requires this exploitation, which requires this um, oppression. Because through that oppression and through that exploitation, the ruling class is able to enrich itself and able to engorge itself and cement itself further into uh, the halls of power. And so further perpetuating this system forward. So you have to continue this exploitation and this oppression to keep those people in power. So how do we fix this problem, right? That seems like a pretty uh, complicated thing. That seems like a pretty involved problem, something that's going to take a while to fix um and i agree <laughs> yeah it's definitely gonna take a while uh, my grandma always says you're not gonna uh build a perfect society and uh, you know the argument for that would be that nobody's trying to nobody on the left intends to build a utopia or nobody who has their head on straight uh intends to build the utopia on the left because it's impossible it just simply is um Human beings have been alive for millions of years. There's been millions of more different types of societies. Uh, if there was a possibility at a utopia, guess what, guys? We probably would have found it by now. Um, or, moreover, we probably would have founded the ideas which actually were based in truth and reality and material conditions which could lead to a utopia. But if we analyze things like... Uh, anarchism which call for a perfect utopia um there's certain 
strains of anarchism, I can't think of the terms, um, or certain types of socialism, which call for this perfect uh, socialist society. These things are just based wholly in uh, fantasy, right? So how do we fix this problem? Well, let's discuss a few different ideas and kind of some steps we need to take. Um, let me take a sip of this drink here. So first and foremost, like we were talking about earlier, uh, spontaneity spontaneity is not a successful strategy. It's not. Um, history proves that. You want to deny that? Go for it. Um, you have a hundred or so different examples to look at. Have fun reading them all. Uh, so the first thing that we got to do is we got to organize. So one of the most key concepts that many revolutionaries throughout time and space, that's meaning both all throughout history and also all over places in the world, have learned through the very act of revolution is that spontaneity, as I said, is not at all a winning strategy. It can gain us ground, surely, um, in power, definitely. But as Brett from Revolutionary Left Radio uh, so often argues, the true measure of success and strength of a revolutionary movement or a people's liberation movement is its ability to defend itself, right? Because as we all know, any deviation from the norm in any way in society is met with a swift hand of correction. Uh, this is not usually a soft touch either. And so we have to be ready for this reality, meaning that we cannot be unorganized or simply spontaneous. It is important, of course, spontaneity that is, and it definitely does serve a role in its own right. But in order to succeed, we have to be uh, militant. We have to be organized. So then... If we're saying, well, this is the only way we can be successful, a lot of people would argue there's been no successful socialist state, right? So then what is the success that we're talking about? How do we measure the su success that we're talking about? Well, I would argue that the formation of a people's state, which exists to provide for the people and to be accountable to those people uh, by way of being simply an organized existence of the very people which uh, this, you know, this government, this state, whatever you want to call it, exists to provide for, that's the main point which can take a successful revolution and turn it into an unsuccessful one by avoiding these things, by not being built of the people, being accountable to, uh, to and by the people, and being uh, a tool for the masses, right? So this concept right here is oftentimes the misunderstood conception, in my analysis, of the mass line. Um, moreover, this, this conception can only come into existence through the use of yet another misrepresentative, misrepresented idea, uh, which is the dictatorship of the proletariat. Um, so yeah, basically, I, I guess I didn't write any more notes down. That's fine. But, um, so yeah, basically what I was going for is just this idea that the only way that we can truly expect to organize ourselves in a way which is you know institutions and structures which are made up of the very people uh, who are going to be affected by the laws the legislation the changes uh, that they make to society the only way that we can do that is through the creation and the process of what is known as the dictatorship of the proletariat this is a very commonly misunderstood idea of uh, Marx's, of Lenin's, of many different revolutionary thinkers who all progressed it in a few different ways. Um, but this idea of the dictator, or the dictatorship of the proletariat, is often 
misunderstood because especially in places like America, we don't really know what dictatorship means. Um, we think dictatorship means one person wholly in charge. Uh, <clears throat> but I would argue, as many people have before me, that many of us have always lived under a dictatorship. Uh, America has always been a dictatorship, but a dictatorship in a way which we have not been taught to understand it. Uh, funny how that works. Uh, it's a dictatorship of a group of people, also known as the ruling class. See how that connects? Um, we can all understand that there's a certain group of people, a certain class of people, uh, you might say, uh, which are always in power, which are always the wealthy, which are always the influential group in society. And so it, it's only uh, easy to understand this as a dictatorship, a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. That's what that is, a dictatorship of the ruling class. So the idea of the dictatorship of the proletariat is, in true Marxist fashion, a turning of this idea on its head by saying, in fact, rather than having the minority rule over the majority, because we have to remember the ruling class, the bourgeoisie, in every you know state which it has surfaced itself, it has been the minority. Um, rather than having the minority rule over the majority, we have the majority rule over the minority. And even this a lot of people might wince at, but we have to understand that if we expect to survive, if we expect to build a society where the general public can actually you know, provide for itself, this is a step that needs to happen. And as Mao and many others have pointed out, this is not a dinner party. This is not a process which is going to be all lilacs and daisies. Um, People will die. Uh, the intention is, um, as a parody, of course, because it's really satirical and very funny to talk about, the intention is for a certain group of people to die, right? Or to be um, made into the very uh, type of existence that you and I have been in our entire life. Um, this might be cruel to some, uh, or I guess not even cruel, but this might seem wrong to some, but I think that we have to understand that the intention of change is never what is pure or what is ideally um, what we would want because that's what all of society has been. It has just been people saying, no, this is what I want. Oh, well, this is what I want. Oh, well, this is what I want. And now we're at a point where the earth is literally dying. Um, we have 20 to 30 years, supposedly, until a true climate collapse. Um, half of our country is out of a job. Half of the world is unable to provide for itself. Um, the 1% uh, of the population owns more wealth than uh, 180 different countries uh, in the world. That is the 1% of, you know, wealthy corporations and people in the world um, own more wealth than 180 different countries combined. And so it's only right to say that uh, this might be a process that a lot of people might not like, but this is a process that literally take resources which already exist, you know, this capital, this food, these uh, production tools, all the things which we need in order to build a new society which provides for the people of this country and of this world because remember like we talked about before our conception of a country um, is wholly 
uh, idealistic and also really doesn't really doesn't make any sense because we are not a country we are subject to a country but we are not of a country and that much is very evident when people like you and I go into court versus people like the president of the United States or our soon-to-be president of the United States who are both war criminals including all of their cabinet their administration and every single one of our government officials which have ever or will ever serve because the state that exists especially in the United States today exists as a tool of oppression it exists as a tool of the ruling class which oppresses the working class and that's the working class everywhere and that's working class movements everywhere a great book to understand this idea before maybe you even read mine would be Washington Bullets by Vijay Prashad I will never stop plugging that book um, but yeah so we have to understand that the things which myself and others like me are calling for is not something that we just you know want because we think it's cool or we like it um th these are the things which are necessary in order for the survival of the general human race you know extremely wealthy people have already made it quite clear that when the climate collapse comes you know there's literal uh businesses which build underground uh, bunkers for rich people they're just gonna go underground and just leave us poor people to die that much is already clear and we're not even necessarily in the middle of an apocalypse yet and they're already doing these things um, I think this 600 bucks even this two thousand dollars like I said before is a, a blatant uh, proof of this idea that the ruling class has no interest in the well-being of the working class and so I it seems only intelligent to me that the working class uh, take matters into its own hands and begins providing for itself and there's ways which we can provide for ourselves, which will work and will make it so that we can continue doing that and we can you know build new ways and new ideas and new structures and new institutions and new you know everything which can better provide for people in today's day and age but first and foremost we like i said in the united states we don't even have a party which truly represents the majority of the working people in this country um and so we kind of got to start there right um, if you're still listening to this, I appreciate you very much. I hope you are having a lovely holidays if you celebrate. If not, I hope you are uh, healthy and safe and uh, being able to enjoy some of your time, uh, whether that's you know spending time with your loved ones or spending time doing your hobbies or whatever spending time enjoyably means to you. I hope you're able to do that. Uh, to those of us who are struggling here uh, in the United States and elsewhere, um, my heart is with you. I wish my hands and my feet and myself could be with you fighting alongside with you. Or I wish I had the, you know, the capital, the money to make it so you didn't have to fight at all. But as we know, throughout many different theories, throughout many different active practicing revolutions, the only way which we can make it over these problems is through. Um, and so we have to struggle and we have to fight and we have to win. And that is what the mission of any true communist must be. Uh, power to the people. Uh, my solidarity goes out to all struggling peoples across the world, but especially right now with the people of Peru, the people of India, the people of Palestine, uh, especially those who uh, last night, Christmas or two nights ago, Christmas Day, uh, were bombed by the Israelis. Uh, the Israeli Defense Forces at the Gaza Strip. Um, uh, 
my solidarity goes out to you solidarity with venezuela and uh, i would like to say wholeheartedly um that i stand in direct opposition to the sanctions uh, by the united states and its cohorts on all uh, countries during this pandemic but also uh, in any way shape or form and i also stand against uh, imperialism as a whole uh, and you or anyone who calls themselves a leftist or a communist or whatever uh, need do the same um, openly and explicitly uh, in order to prove that this is not the will of the people this is the will of the powers which preside over the people and are separate from the people and have no place ruling over the people um, thank you for listening if you don't already, please follow me on all my social medias. I have Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Annoying Question Boy. Um, also, like I said earlier, find my blog, annoyingquestionboy.blogspot.com. And everybody have a great day. Thank you for listening. Uh, stay tuned for next time, and we'll see you then. Bye. Love you all. Solidarity.